We took a little trip last summer. We saved up airline miles for like four years. So did all the credit card offers, saved up miles, and went and visited six countries in five weeks. Saw a bunch of old friends, saw some uh, family, uh, spent some time in the world's smallest country. You know which one this is? Which one is it? I, somebody said Vatican City. That's right. We're in the Vatican City. So tons of highlights. One of the brightest highlights was the time we spent together as a family memorizing and talking about the psalm we're going to look at today. Dads, I don't do a lot of things perfectly well, but this was really one of my best ideas. Um, we, on the trip, five weeks, so we had lots of time, I kind of created a realistic schedule where we would look at Psalm 63. It's a psalm we'll look at today. We, we looked at it very slowly, kind of in the evenings, not every night, but kind of throughout the trip, made a little devotional, and we memorized the psalm as a family on this trip. And it was kind of a lovely thread that kind of carried us through from country to country and it gave us language sometimes to use to thank God for what we were seeing and what we were experiencing. We ended the trip uh, tired, but I honestly think having spent time in this psalm, we were noticeably refreshed in our spirits. I actually think that's why Psalm 63 is in our Bibles. It's a refreshing psalm. It really is. It, re- it gives you so much refreshment. It's a refreshment psalm because it reminds us what our best and our highest good is. Just reminds you. It says, this is your best and highest good. And, and maybe this morning that's kind of what you need uh, right here kind of in the middle of the year. We're here in the middle of June, and you need a reminder about where the good life is to be found. So if you got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 63, kind of right in the middle of your Bibles. I'm going to read it for us. So Psalm 63, get your Bibles out if you've got them. We're going to keep them open. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 7, 4. You have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Lord, we need you today. We open up this book week by week because we believe that in it is profit that we cannot live without. In fact, you've said that. You've told us that we human beings don't live by bread alone, but we live, we flourish, we survive on every word that comes out of your mouth. And you've been generous in giving us so many words from your mouth, not the least of which is this psalm that we look at today. Would you do that work that you promised to do? You said that when your word goes forth, it always accomplishes the end for which it was given, whether that's instruction, training in righteousness, kind of correction. There's work that your word does, and it always does it, so we believe, help our unbelief, Father, Minister to us this morning. Strengthen weak hands. Strengthen wobbly knees. Give fresh grace to your people. That's why we come. That's why we're here. Would you do that, we pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see kind of a fresh what the Bible says about where the good life is to be found. I want us to kind of see it afresh, but more than that, I want us to freshly commit to pursuing that life with kind of everything we got. So where is it? Where's the good life? And just kind of re- recommit. Yeah, I see it, and I want, to, I want to give my heart to that. I think it's good for us to do on kind of a regular basis, recommit to this sort of thing. So pretty straightforward objective. Here's how I want to proceed. And kiddos, maybe this will be useful for you as you you got those little papers. Kids, you have a little paper to color on and draw on today? Are you already sacked out? No, I see I see eyeballs on me right now. All right, this is what I want you to do. If you got time, you're not too busy right now, draw three boxes, equal size, one, two, three. Three boxes. Here's how we're going to proceed. We're going to pretend like this psalm is a house that we're returning to at night. And the house has three rooms, and we're just going to go into each room and turn on the lights. So you draw three boxes. Those are rooms. They don't have to be 3D, but that's a pretty good 3D box right there. I see it right there. Three boxes right next to each other. We're going to briefly walk through this short psalm, make it our own. Turn on the lights in each of the room. We're going to do that first. So kids, the hardest thing you're going to have to do is when I talk about the rooms, I'm going to give you one sentence that kind of tells you what that room's about. So if you can listen and write it down, I'd kind of like to see that afterwards and see if you got it. Okay, that's a little bit of a challenge. It may be too much for the middle of June, but we're going to try. And maybe you help your parents by writing it down so they remember afterwards too. So first we're going to walk through this psalm. It's like, like I said, it's like a house. You return to it at night and you're going to flip on the lights. There's three rooms. Let's see what's in each. And second, we'll end by, I want to just draw three kind of simple lessons. 
three takeaways, three things we can walk home with saying, here are ways I can respond to God's voice this morning. All right. So first, let's turn on the lights. Room number one, verse one. Room number one, verse one. Here's my sentence. Here we see David's greatest need. That's room number one, verse one. Here we see David's greatest need. In our Bibles, there's a short title before verse one that says this. A psalm, you can look at it right there. It's probably in kind of a different kind of font. A psalm of, do you see it? Say it. Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So the psalms are kind of full of titles like this. In fact, when we read Psalm 84, uh, Phil read the superscription, that little bit at the top of the psalm. The psalms are full of little descriptions like this. Some tell us, well, who wrote the psalm? Others tell us what circumstances kind of led to the writing of the psalm. Some of them tell us about instruments we don't know a lot about. Um, not every psalm has one of these little titles, but a lot do. And the title to Psalm 63 tells us something very important. It tells us that David wrote this psalm and that he wrote it when he was in the wilderness of Judah, or as the superscription could also be read, in the desert of Judah. In other words, he wasn't in a very nice place when he wrote this psalm. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. It's not in a very nice place. And more than that, he is far from home. He's in the desert. Guys, David did not live in the desert. Where did he live? He lived in, starts with a J, ends in Jerusalem. Okay, he lived in Jerusalem. So he's out in the desert, not a nice place, and away from home. And he's there. Look at verse 9. He's there, verse 9 tells us, because people... Verse 9, we're seeking to destroy his life. So in worse, from what we know of David's life, those people seeking to destroy his life included his very own son. How's that for a Father's Day sermon? Dad, do you think fathering's tough? Think about David. His kids wanted to kill him. Your kids may not like you, but I don't think they want to kill you. Um, David, he is in a bad spot, away from home, and he's got enemies seeking to destroy his life, and one of those enemies is his own boy, Absalom. You can read about this in 2 Samuel. So David's not in a particularly comfortable spot. He writes the psalm not from a place of comfort. He's got lots of needs. He needs food and water. Isn't that kind of one of the things you need when you're in the wilderness? You need a drink. You need a snack. He needs safety. He's in a dangerous place. He's got enemies after him. He needs to get back home, kind of get back to work. He needs to be reconciled with his son. Maybe you could list other needs David has, but those are kind of the most acute. He's got a lot of needs. But he tells us, this is the remarkable part of the psalm, he tells us these actually aren't his greatest needs. Safety, food, water, reconciliation with his kids. Those seem like pretty big needs. And David says, don't, don't get lost on those. Those aren't my biggest need. Here in the desert, his mind goes to the one thing 
that he needs above everything else. Not too long ago, I finally had the opportunity to watch Lauren Hillenbrand's Unbroken. You guys heard of this or read? It's a movie now. Maybe you read the book. If you, if you haven't, this would be a nice summer read, actually. She's the one who wrote Seabiscuit. You know Seabiscuit? Okay. So Lauren Hillenbrand wrote a book called Unbroken. The movie's called Unbroken. Maybe the book's called that, too. Thank you. I see a head back there. It's the inspiring story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini, an Olympic athlete, a World War II airman, and eventually prisoner of war. I won't spoil it. In the movie, it kind of stops before this part, but Louis Zamperini actually was a vibrant Christian. Came to know the Lord, I think at a Billy Graham crusade, and the book goes on to detail. It's, it's an amazing life. But at one point in the movie, Louis is adrift at sea with two other airmen. Again, I won't give you all the details. I don't want to spoil it. But they're, they're adrift at sea, and they're sunbaked. Like it's, you know, their lips have that, those white sp spots on them. They're emaciated. They're starving. They're dehydrated. And they're surrounded. This was the part that kind of caught my attention. They're surrounded by sharks. Sharks are kind of going around their little boat, and in the middle of all this, they start talking, almost deliriously, start talking what, about what they miss most at home. And Louis, whose parents were old world Italian, starts describing his mom's gnocchi. You like gnocchi? Little potato balls? Okay. They're, it's good if somebody makes it good. It's bad if somebody makes it bad. And he's describing his mom's gnocchi. Well, here's David. He's kind of in a similar spot to Louis Zamperini. He's parched. He's hungry. He's surrounded by danger. He's missing home. And his mind goes, his mind goes to God. Not gnocchi, but to God. Look at verse 1 again. Oh, God. Verse 1. Oh, God. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Don't, don't miss. Don't miss this. Don't miss how David describes his longing for God. He says his soul thirsts. His, his body, his flesh faints for God. Did you know that your soul can thirst? It's kind of an interesting way to talk, isn't it? Your soul can thirst. Your, your body can feel God's absence. Soul can thirst. Your body can kind of feel God's absence. Your body actually needs spiritual calories to exist. That's how the Bible puts it. I prayed this way this morning. You don't live by bread alone. You remember God telling that to Moses? You don't live by what you ate for breakfast alone, however good it was. You must have God too. Can't live without Him. I actually think there's many of us going around this world and we're spiritually emaciated and we don't even know it. We're spiritually dehydrated and we're not aware of it. We're, and we try all sorts of things uh, to quench the thirst and to fill the void because we misdiagnose what our real problem is. And nothing... 
Nothing's going to work until we realize that our soul is thirsting and our flesh is hungering after God himself. It was made, you were designed for that. You were designed to be satisfied. I know that's kind of a... Um, ethereal, hard to grasp onto idea, but you were designed to find satisfaction in God like your tongue finds satisfaction in water or your belly found satisfaction in breakfast. What you need, what David needed more than anything else in that spot was God himself. That was his greatest need. That's room number one. All right, room number two. Room number two, second box, if you're keeping score, second box. Verses 2 through 8. This is room number 2 in the Psalms. We're going to flick this light on. The sentence summary is, here we see how David satisfied this need. Room number 1, what was David's greatest need? Room number 2, how did he satisfy it? Verses 2 to 8. How is a soul thirsty for God quenched? How is a soul thirsty for God quenched? David tells us, verse 2, here it is. Look at the Bible. Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. That is the answer right there. David finds God in the place where God reveals himself. That's, that's what verse 2 is telling you. How does a soul thirsty for God get quenched? David says, I've looked upon you. I've seen you. Where, David? In the sanctuary. David finds God in the place where God reveals himself. And for David, that place was above all God's tent, the tabernacle. That's where God revealed himself to ancient Israel. That's actually where he lived, above the mercy seat, guarded by cherubim, there in the innermost room of the tent. That's where God dwelled. And David says, I've seen you there. My mind goes there. I go to where you've revealed yourself. But the trouble was... That sanctuary was where? It was in Jerusalem, and David is stuck in the desert. That's why he says, look at verse 6, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Since David isn't in Jerusalem, he can't go to where God had specially revealed himself. He goes there in his memory. I remember you, David says, upon my bed. I think about you. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. David had stored up knowledge of God in his heart. In this way, he was like my grandpa, or maybe it's the other way around. My grandpa was like David. When my grandpa became a Christian, he was an adult. So he didn't grow up a Christian. My dad actually was kind of instrumental in leading his dad to the Lord. And when my grandpa became a Christian, he was, as an adult, he was very hungry for the Bible. Maybe you've seen new Christians like this. It's, it's awesome. They can't get enough of the Bible, reading it for hours. Kind of a, they, They've got a, a new spirit of them that loves this book that they formerly disregarded. My grandpa loved the Bible, but he also had a condition called macular dege degeneration, where his eyes were slowly dimming, and eventually they would go dark. And as he began to experience the effects of this condition, I remember grandpa's Bibles got bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, you got large font, 
And then I, I still remember Grandpa had this uh, giant ring, uh, light ringed uh, magnifying glass that kind of extended over his desk. He'd turn on the light and he'd put it over the Bible's words to make them gigantic. And eventually that didn't work either. And Grandpa had to go to audio tapes of the Bible. I remember when he couldn't read anymore, how sad that was. But years of reading, years of studying the Bible had filled Grandpa's mind with God's Word, which, along with those audio tapes he used, continued to feed his soul even when he couldn't see any longer. I'm saying similarly so it was for David. He stored up revelation from God, memories of God's power, Memories of God's love that his mind in the desert now recalls. He can't go there in person because he's far away, but he can remember stuff. And notice that it's not just knowledge about God that feeds David's soul. It was also David's experiences of God that nourish him. Look at verse 7. Not just knowledge about God, not just... Uh, God, you've said this about yourself. I remember that. But it was, God, I've, I've actually experienced really special things from you. Verse 7 says, notice, David remembers and meditates, verse 7, on how God had been his help. You have been my help, David says. You, you wonder what David is kind of referring to here. He fought a really big dude once named Goliath, I bet David replayed that. Look, if, you, if God helped you beat Goliath, I think you'd think about it a lot as you kind of continued to live, don't you think? I bet he thought about That was like a highlight reel in David's mind. So I bet he's thinking about, God, you rescued me from the hand of that giant Philistine. I suspect David's also remembering all the times God preserved him from King Saul. Remember when King Saul kind of harried David around the Judean wilderness like Absalom is now doing? But he thought about that a lot. I bet he thought about the times when he was a young little shepherd and God had allowed him to sort of defeat, I always love these stories, defeat lions and bears while he guarded his sheep for his dad. I bet his mind went to things like that. If you don't, you really must somewhere, in a journal, in your Bible, maybe orally as a family, somehow you got to keep record of how God's been faithful to you. you got to keep record of it. We, we were just last night with some dear friends from India, and we had a lovely Indian dinner. We love Indian food as Compton family. We, we gobbled it up. I got two teenage boys, and they ate like a ton of food. They loved it. But for the two-and-a-half-hour dinner, we had my friend from India just recount how God had rescued him, saved him in India, and led to him starting a church that he pastored for 15 years before he was even able to come to Bethlehem Seminary. It, it was an extraordinary story, complete with, there was no, when he wanted to get baptized, there was no place to get baptized, and they prayed. It was so dry. They prayed. It rained. They found a big, muddy puddle and were baptized in a muddy puddle, the water was so parasite-ridden that he got a skin condition that made him where he couldn't move for a day. I mean, it was like, that's just one highlight. And he was recounting this to us. And as we went home, Compton family went home, we thought, my goodness, look how God 
has been so faithful and extraordinarily calling people all, all over this world and it built our faith. That's one of the things I think David's reminding us of is you've got to keep track of, remember, somehow as a family, God has been faithful to you. You've got your own story. You've got to tell that story. You've got to make times to sit down. Guys, remember when God did this. Remember, we didn't know how God was going to do there and God gave us that. You remember this. That's what David does. Records that you can draw on in times of trouble. What David needed was God, and David finds God where God had revealed himself, in his sanctuary and in David's life. Maybe my favorite part of the psalm. If you wonder, did David find what he was looking for? He wanted God. He looks for God where God's to be found. If you wonder, David, did you find what you were looking for, where your needs met? Look at verses 5 and 6. Did this revelation of God satisfy your thirsty soul? 5 and 6 kind of underscore beyond a shadow of a doubt. Look at it again. My soul, David says, will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. Look at beginning of verse 6. When... I remember you. So I like how the New Living Translation puts it a little bit better. ESV is great. Anybody read the New Living Translation here? Is that okay? All right, we're good here. All right. Um, I always recommend this one first. NLT says, you satisfy me. This is verse 5, NLT. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. Better than the best gnocchi, or in my case, the best sushi. There in the desert, David's memories of God, they satisfy his soul. David found something that was even more satisfying than life itself. Did you notice that in verse 3? That's a verse you ought to underline. Verse 3, your steadfast love, this is David saying it, your steadfast love is, do you see it? It's better than what? Say it out loud. It's better than life. David says it. Your steadfast love, this thing that I, I know satisfies me, it's so satisfying, it's better than the best thing I can think of, which is to keep living. It's better than that, David says. And I, I like this too. Notice what David is saying. It, your, your, your love, uh, knowing you, is better than the richest feast, better than life itself. It's not better like on some other plane of reality better. Like, oh yeah, God satisfies me, but it feels different than when I eat a good meal or have a really good time with my family. The same, listen to me please, the same satisfaction receptors that are triggered by an exquisite meal, are overrun by God himself. David says, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. Not in a different way, not in some ethereal spiritual sense. He's saying, you know how good it feels to have a good meal? Being related to, knowing God, communing with God, is even better than that experience. The God who designed your taste buds designed them to point to himself. 
And my word to you is that's either true or it's not. Either God is more satisfying than life itself, and that's true. It's in your Bible. you got two options. I believe it, or David's making it up. That's not true. It's either true or it isn't. I think we all want to say we believe what God's word says. It's a true thing David is pointing to. How is David satisfied? He goes to God and where God has revealed himself. All right, that's room number two. Room number three, third box. Okay, kiddos, nice and, nice and energetic. Here we go, third room. This is verses 9 through 11 in that third box. Don't put it in box two or box one. You're crowding that room if you do it. We need clean rooms. Room 3, verses 9 through 11. Here's the summary. Here in verses 9 through 11, in this third room, flip on the lights, what do we see? David warns us. He warns us, nothing else will satisfy us like God. That's the warning. That's what we find in this third room. Notice verse 11. I'll say that one more time as kids are kind of feverishly writing. Nothing else will satisfy us like God. That's rule number three. David warns us. Look at verse 11. David calls his enemies, fourth word from the end, he calls them liars. Liars. Kind of feels like, why are you calling them liars? They're mean, they're hostile, they're violent, but why liars? David's enemies lie... Because in opposing David, they are opposing God. So, so this is how they lie. Why does he call them liars? Because when they are hostile to David, they're actually being hostile to God because David is God's king. He's God's man. And opposing David then, who's urging us to find our satisfaction in God... And opposing David, these enemies are then saying to any and to all who will listen that there are better ways to live than the way David is living and the way he's talking about. There's better ways. That there are other things that can satisfy your soul besides God. They're lying and saying there's another way to life that's better. We're opposing David. Therefore, we're opposing God and we're opposing what this guy is promoting. They're saying there's other ways to live besides the way David says, and David says, that's just not true. That's a lie. People who say such things, and we hear it all the time, they're not telling you the truth. When I grew up in Detroit, I grew up in Detroit, and on the way home on I-94, there was this uh, billboard that as a kid I kind of liked until I sort of came of age and realized that it was a cigarette company promoting. But it was the Marlboro Man. You know who this guy is? He was so cool. And there he was. It was a giant billboard. I don't even know if they make them this big anymore. Kind of extended, like super tall. And he was in a cowboy hat. He had a Marlboro kind of uh, pinched in his two fingers. Perfectly stubbled face. Kind of the lines on. He looked like Clint Eastwood a little bit. James Dean. And there he was, kind of cool as can be, smoking a Marlboro cigarette. Maybe, do you remember the Marlboro Man, anybody? Come on. All right. We don't have commercials like that anymore. Compare that advertisement with the more recent cigarette commercials, not designed by Marlboro, but by the Surgeon General. You know these ones? 
where it kind of pans through and at the very last scene, there's a human being. It's kind of, you got to be told it's a human being because it doesn't look like one. There's this grayish purple kind of raisin of a man. Remember this one? On a ventilator, kind of wheezing slowly in and out. And the Surgeon General says something like, cigarettes will kill you. I don't know if it says it like that, but that's the point. David's enemies are like that billboard in Detroit saying, look how cool it is to go against God's ways. And David is like the Surgeon General saying, you're going to end up on a ventilator choking and wheezing your way to the grave if you listen to that advertisement. Those guys are lying to you. They're false advertisers. And I'm telling you, our world is full of false advertisement. We got stories all the time telling us there are better things that satisfy than what these Christians say satisfy. I think our hearts sort of are inclined to those things sometimes. And David is saying those are false narratives. Those stories aren't true. They're lying to you. Don't wait until you can barely breathe or on a ventilator before you listen to what God's Word says here. All right, that's the last room. We've turned on all the lights. Now three brief lessons from this psalm. All right, three lessons from this psalm, kind of takeaways. How can we respond to God's voice this morning? Lesson number one, here it is, pretty simple. What you need more than anything else is God. What you need more than anything else is God. Knowing and experiencing God, David is telling us in this book, it's either true or it's not, knowing and experiencing God is better than getting in shape, getting married. It's better than getting married. You may not believe that right now. It is. Marriage is so good. But knowing God is even better. It's better than getting good grades. Okay? You guys got your grades. It's better than getting good grades. It's better than getting into a top MBA program or getting a raise, which we could all use with inflation. It's better than getting out of rehab or debt or getting 50 books read this year, or your house painted, or any number of house projects. Knowing and treasuring and finding and pursuing God is better than any other thing we want to achieve or do or experience. It's better than food. That's what David says. It's better than water. It's better than sleep, which are all really awesome things. It's better than life itself. Knowing and experiencing God is your highest and best good. Verse 3 is the anchor to that takeaway. It's better than life itself. Greater to the lesser. If it's better than life, it's better than everything lesser than life, including all the things I just mentioned. Lesson 1. Lesson 2. Lesson 2. Lesson 1. What you need more than anything else is God. Lesson 2. Look for God in this book. Look for him in the place where he's revealed himself. Where has God in our place in the story revealed himself specially? Right here in the Bible, 66 books. There's a joke somebody had that said, uh, I, I asked for a word from the Lord and all I got were these 66 books. That's pretty good. 
Okay, he's given us 66 books. A few years back, my wife, Sharice, she passed on an article she had read titled, maybe you can Google it later today, not right now. Don't Google it right now. You have more time for Bible reading than you think. That's what it was titled. Crossway Books, the publisher out of Illinois, had done a survey, 11,000 of their readers. And one of the data points that uh, struck me was that you can read through your entire Bible if you spend 12 minutes a day reading it. And their survey said 60% of their readers spent 30 minutes a day watching TV. 30% of their readers spent 30 minutes or more per day on Facebook. 11% of their readers spend 30 minutes a day on Instagram. This was a while ago. Only 6% spend 30 minutes on Twitter. I bet that number would be up, and these apps already sound old, don't they? We're dated in that survey. Those things, Instagram, Netflix, TV, Facebook, they're not inherently bad. What you watch matters, but spending time watching TV, that's okay. They're just, these things aren't going to satisfy you like God does. That's the point. They're not going to satisfy you like God does. So if you've got to choose between your Bible and Netflix, you've got 30 minutes, you've got to choose. The Bible is telling you what it's telling you to choose. Choose time with the Lord. Go hard after him. If you've got 30 minutes in either the Bible or Bejeweled, or whatever game you like playing, uh, choose your Bible. Knowing and experiencing God is better than life, so pursue Him in this book. Here's my little pastoral advice. It's an obstacle to read your Bible every day. I know this. But one of the things that makes that obstacle easily overcomable is you've got to have a place, you've got to have a specific time, and you need to have a plan. A place, I'll, I'll do the two Ps, a place, a plan, and a time. Every day at 6 a.m., Every day it's on the couch, my leather couch where I can look out the windows and my wife is next to me and I'm holding a cup of coffee. That's really good coffee. So I I got 6 a.m., I'm on my couch, that's my place. And my plan, I'm reading through three chapters a day using just some reading plan I found. And you know what? Having something like that overcomes the obstacles, surprisingly, Because you don't have to think about that every day. When am I going to do it? Where am I going to do it? What am I going to read? And I'm telling you, if you don't have something that simple, sometime this week, like tomorrow, maybe this afternoon, just simply come up with where where are you going to do it, when are you going to do it, and what are you going to read? And then once you write that down, because you need to write it down, send an email to one of these two guys. Okay, Phil or Brian. How's that for a little accountability? This is what I'm going to do, Pastor. They will love those emails. Seriously, it will make their day. And it will allow you to concretize this truth that your greatest good is God. Your greatest good is God, and it's found in this book. And you need a plan to get into this. I'll skip through all the other things I wanted to say about that. I'll end with this. All right. Final lesson, lesson three. Friends, we have got to stop looking to other things to satisfy us when God says he will do it. So, So... Yes, there are other great things in this world that God uses and through which we experience God. But there are other places we go that are opposed to, antithetical to, that are leading us away from God. 
Only God is big enough to satisfy your deepest longings. And anyone who claims otherwise, they're lying to you. So if you're not a Christian, that may sound really harsh. I'm telling you, you think there's a way to live the good life. I'm telling you, there's only one way to do it. It's in the Bible, and God tells you what it is. And every other way you've tried, people are lying to you. That's harsh. But think of it this way. If you don't know Jesus... We're pastors, those of us that teach the Bible, we're like a guy standing on I-35 and the bridge has collapsed. Remember when that bridge collapsed? I-35 in Minneapolis. And we're standing there and you're driving your car, you're driving your car super fast and you're about to go up and fall off that bridge to your death. So we're not just trying to stand on the road and say, oh, you should obey the speed limit, stop having so much fun. We're trying to say, if you go down this road that you think is great and fantastic, you're going to die. So it's not mean of us. We're not exclusive just for being exclusive. We're not parochial. We're not trying to ruin all your fun. We're just trying to tell you, if you keep driving up that road, you're going to like drive off and plunge in the Mississippi or whatever river that is. Is it the Mississippi or the St. Croix? I don't know. We're still new to the area. Indulge me. You're going to die. And when Christians are exclusive like that, we're just saying God has told you there's a good way to live. And when we say don't go those other ways, we're not trying to ruin your fun. We're trying to save your life. And God, he loves you so much that he tells you in this book where the good life is to be found. And even more than that, if you don't know the Lord, God, the God we talk about, has given us a gift, his son Jesus... And in giving Jesus, he makes a way for you to have a relationship with God. Jesus, his son, God's son, died in your place to take away your sin, the thing that keeps you from following God and living the good life. God sent his son to take away the thing that was preventing you from being in a relationship with this God who's more satisfying than life itself. God did that for you. The Bible says, I love this, because he loves you. He loves you. That's why he gave Jesus for you. He loves you. So if uh, you don't know the Lord today, hear God telling you in this psalm, there is a way to live that's oh so good. And if you're pursuing other ways, those aren't going to lead where you think they're going to. Listen and follow and give yourself to this God who loved you enough to give his son to die in your place. All right, let me end with this. Friends, what we need most today and every day is God himself. He is, I'm reminding you, the psalm is reminding you, he is our best and highest good. It's what your soul is thirsting for. So let this psalm, Psalm 63, refresh your commitment to finding your satisfaction in the only place where it can be filled Do it for your joy. Do it for God's glory. You won't regret it. Lord, thank you for this amazing book in which you meet our every need. You show us the ways of life. You give us reason upon reason to follow it. You tell us where not to go. Where would we be without a God who speaks? Not only are you good, but you are manifest in revealing yourself to us and telling us how we can live a life that is everything we were created to be. So God, would you 
Open up eyes to see the goodness of your ways and forgive us for where we've traded in on your ways for things that are uh, cul-de-sacs of disappointment and despair and that are blind alleys leading us only to sorrow and misery. We, we want to follow you and to find you fully satisfying more than life itself. Would you help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.